while I was traveling out to the northwest of, um, of uh, Sydney, uh, historian Dr. Rowe, and he uh, set up a, a, an after-dinner speaker, and that turned out to be Peter. And I would have to say that of all the people that we met, uh, Peter Gibb was really by far the most impressive speaker. And I think when you hear his story, you'll agree with me that it's a, it is a remarkable tale. I think perhaps the most important thing that I took away was that Peter is a man of immense stature. Uh, no matter what um, uh, group he comes from or what organization he runs, he, to me, represents the very guts of what is great about Australia. Uh, and, and I think you'll agree with me when you hear him. So I, I think I'll just leave it at that. And uh, Peter, welcome. All right, Peter, um, I'm sorry for all the difficulties you've had. You must be very frustrated at your end, but uh, appreciate very much that you've joined us this morning. Um, you, you've joined us out in Dubbo. Um, we might just sort of cut to the chase a little for the sake of time. You, you're working for an organisation called Ready. Could you let us know what they do? What, what do you get up to at Ready? Yeah, so what we do here at Ready is uh, we basically work with remote Aboriginal communities uh, on their development. We look at employment opportunities, uh, business development, uh, and a real focus on education uh, to, to reduce some of the social issues. Uh, that's obviously are very prominent uh, in these communities and have been for generations upon generations. And what would be some of the examples of the work that you're doing and perhaps some of the sort of success stories? So let's, let's start with education because that's, that's obviously the key uh, for our progress. Um, so, you know, it's really getting down to the tin tax with families that... Um, you know, families' uh, ideology about education. Uh, would you would you believe we're still uh, we're still having a focus on that in our in, even in our modern time, 2020, when you know uh, we would sort of expect that our families would have really come a long way from the times when people weren't allowed to go to school and were forced to stay away from school grounds. That's, that's generations gone by and some of the people in the call today may, uh, may be familiar with, with, with that history but uh, in, in, in my generation we have a real attitude that education is the key uh, for a better future for everybody and so uh, but we're still dealing with, with families who, who don't really value uh, education or to see the value of education so I think that's the work that we're really putting in here getting kids to school to start off with. Similar to what's happening in other states and territories, there's a real um, momentum in working with families to change that mindset about education. So on that note, Peter, you didn't grow up in Dubbo. You grew up um, in, in quite a remote area. Did, what opportunities did you have for education? Yeah, so uh, I, um, if anyone knows Western New South Wales, most people would know Dubbo. And you may have heard of Burke. And so I'm, I'm actually another two and a half hours uh, northwest of Burke. So a very remote community. Uh, school just went to year six. Um, and uh, my family, uh, prior to my generation, always, uh, well, never, ever pursued education beyond year six. So my mother, uh, that's her family, uh, she was illiterate. Uh, beyond year six, no school. Um, 
I got to go to school to year six. My great-grandfather made a very strong commitment to my generation that education was going to be a part of our future. So it meant boarding school, though, for us because, um, you know, there's no, no, no school that we could attend on a regular basis um, that could have um, catered for our people uh, in that time. So boarding school came into, into play and our people still today have a connection with boarding school. For instance, my son is away at boarding school. I, I just see that there's a connection and a real attitude towards those opportunities that boarding school can bring. Uh, so going away from your community, meeting other people, having a look how the world works, and then bring that back to your community if that's where you want to be. And so I believe that education in those beyond year six for me, those particular three, first three to four years, gave me a better life outcome. Hmm. So tell us a little bit, what was it like growing up as a kid uh, in such a remote part of New South Wales? Extremely difficult, but you don't you don't see it like that if you only know that that's where you live. You know, uh, outside of our little community, uh, which was uh, built on the on the side of a river, um, the, the water never ever went dry, even in the most severest of droughts. Our river is the, is the Colgoa River, and it re- is a tributary off the Darling. Most would have heard of the Barwon Darling system, uh, certainly now the Murray Darling Basin is on sort of the news every day. Well, my community is built off the side of that and um, we there was always work. Uh, it's always agricultural work, really hard work, shearing industry mainly. Um, and so that's how we were raised there. It's very remote, no health services, no police stations, no real, uh, um, you know, um, stall to provide fresh, fresh food, basically just provided the staples. Um, and... You, you sort of live a semi-traditional life, really, because our meat uh, was still, um, you know, emu and kangaroo. Um, you'd have to travel to town to get our veggies, or we grow our own. So it's pretty tough. Um, and the community really hasn't changed too much even today. There's, there is no shop. There is no police. There is no health services. Um, and people basically fend for themselves, uh, even today. So you you told me when we chatted earlier this week that um, your family on both sides were shearers. Your your dad really instilled in you a very strong work ethic, didn't he? Yeah, he did. I mean, that's, you know, that's how he was raised. His father was raised. And then on my mother's side, that's all about her, you know, her dad and her brothers. They were all, everybody was a shearer because that that work ethic of um, must feed your family uh, you must look after your family from your artwork. And I'm just so pleased that I grew up in a generation at a time when that was really embedded in our spirit. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, generations that came after that didn't, didn't get to see that, get, didn't get to grow up with that, have it embedded in your life. And I'm so happy that, you know, the, the, um, the attitude that there is no welfare, you work to feed your family and that is still what I carry today and hopefully is what I want to pass on to my my You just dropped off a little bit there. So I just was saying that that um, attitude of looking after your family, you must work to feed your family. You do not draw a welfare check. 
it's not the government's responsibility to raise your family. That is what was embedded through the generations and it's what I hold very, very dear today. Mm. No, thank you, Peter. Um, now, you also grew up very quickly. I gather at 14, you're already six foot four and very athletic. You said you had a few things to chase when you uh, grew up out there. Um, so your athletic talent was spotted quite early, wasn't it? Well, uh, in Real Moringal, there was no TV. TV come much, much later. Uh, even when TV was launched across our country, we, we'd only heard about television. We used to listen to the radio. There was a real fascination in our community about rugby league. And so they would turn on a car stereo and listen to the ABC. And as a little fellow, you, you used to listen to the rugby league being played on the radio. And so you, you, you'd be playing around where your, your men would be listening to the football uh, and they, you'd hear all the discussions about rugby league. And so in your mind, it's to grow up one day, could I be on that radio? Could my name be on the radio? So my family can hear my name. And it wasn't, I can just still hold on to that because it was the thing that drove me. I want to be on the radio. I want my, I never thought about television. I just wanted to hear my name on the radio so my people could talk about me like they were about the famous players of that day. And so that athletic ability came from, honestly, from chasing things, chasing things to eat. I remember chasing kangaroos and chasing emus and chasing pigs and chasing sheep. And you chase whatever you could. Goanna's up a tree. You, you do whatever you can sometimes to get a feed. And um, I think there wouldn't have been a kid on, on, the, on, the, on the reserve that couldn't run 100 metres in 10 seconds. And uh, it's just that we grew up very quickly. We were big, strong boys um, with uh, lots of athletic ability. So I'm really connected with rugby league, but that that radio story is real. It was on, and it, it, it propelled it propelled me to try and go as far as I could uh, in rugby league. And it, it must have been a real highlight to be picked for the Australian schoolboy team. Yeah, so at fifteen, at fifteen, six foot four, uh, really, really fast, and. Um, the, but the, the ability to play the game was certainly there. And um, once people uh, in the right places get to spot that talent, it's still happening today. You know, even today, I uh, you see people from uh, Pacific Islands being identified because of their uh, abilities. And, uh, you know, across our country, uh, there's so many Aboriginal remote communities that have got outstanding talent um, that just get missed. And I, I was happy to that I could sort of... Be identified in that time and get that opportunity to play the game I love, but uh, but also for the people back home to hear my name on a radio uh, still mm. there. Well, you, you said it all began with chasing roos and emus, but you came down to Sydney to join a different type of animal, the roosters, and started chasing rabbitos and bulldogs. Uh, what what? How was life in the big smoke for you? Well, it was just. Like anybody uh, going to Sydney, uh, when you actually get to live there and get the opportunity to stay there and try out uh, this new life, my first uh, uh, 
couple of months was uh, spent living with Arthur Beetson, uh, who was obviously an icon in, in the game. Um, and he was the Roosters coach. Uh, and the real reason that I got to go to Sydney, uh, um, it really opened my eyes to, to everything. And um, to get to play alongside some, some people who were play, already playing for Australia, we had some All Blacks that came across uh, to rugby league and I got to play alongside them. So the people you read about in the paper and saw on TV, you're out there sort of running alongside them at training and then playing with them on the weekends. And you mentioned the Rabbitohs and the Bulldogs. Well, that's really uh, uh, amazing because my first two games was the first one was against the Rabbitohs and the second game was against the Bulldogs. And I remember them dearly because... Uh, the Rabbitohs was the opening of the, the Sydney Football Stadium. So that game, I was a part of. And it's, it's, it's to know that we are just a few you know months before that, you were back in the bush. And now you're sort of at the Sydney Football Stadium opening it, playing against the Rabbitohs and uh, in that sort of fierce rivalry. Um, and having Beetson uh, to be there to, to, um, to guide me in those early days was something that I lived for, uh, lived with for the rest of my life. Mm. Oh, that's very special. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And no doubt the family back home would have been very, very proud. Um, but Sydney has lots of distractions as well. How, how did you actually cope living with the pressure of being a professional footballer in Sydney? Uh, you can turn on uh, the news today and read any paper and you'll hear about young footballers falling down, going down the wrong track. Well, I guess what was happening in my time, it didn't take long didn't take long for the distractions of living in Sydney to really take hold on me as a young boy who'd come from the bush, living down there, and even with the guidance of people like Arthur, um, there was still the frailties of life, and I fell very quickly into the trappings, um, and, you know, spent all my money, uh, and I was a very heavy drinker, um, and I walked away from the things. It was quite easy for me, really, to forget that passion that got me to where I was at the time and the opportunities that rugby league presented uh, and fell into the trappings of everything else. Uh, And I spent uh, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort uh, doing all the wrong things. And I lost that vision uh, that I had for my life. And unfortunately, it's still happening today. Every day I read about young blokes with lots of money, uh, lots of time on their hands, lots of opportunities to, do the, uh, to go down a different path. And, you know, if you don't have uh, a guidance uh, in your life, and I found that much later, um, it's quite easy to, to go down the wrong track. Mm. So after a few years, you returned to the bush, um, but really a big turning point for you when your life went into a bit of a spin was 1997. Can you tell us what happened that year, Peter? Yeah, so after, you know, all the opportunities to get away, try some things, develop some uh, profile, but also develop an attitude that I could go back to my communities to, 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 to help and change some of the outcomes there, uh, I, really, I, I reckon that I was on the right trajectory. So I got out of the Sydney life after a couple of years, never really reached my potential. I really then wanted to dedicate my life to improving outcomes for Aboriginal people. But in 1997, um, my sister... Fiona uh, died in police custody in my uh, my community, uh, Brewarana, where she was born and raised. Um, 
unfortunately at 28, um, she she died in police custody. And I think that was, you know, for all of us, all of us have um, those, those moments in our life when, when things occur, whether it's tragedy or something else, when we have to come to a crossroad and make a decision about what we do. And I think that for me, it was an absolute major turning point in everything uh, in my life. And it, it helped shape me as a person, but it also helped me deal with uh, lots of other things in my life, particularly, particularly the, the grog, because the grog was such a part of a big part of my life. And Fiona's death it shocked me to the core. Uh, I'm the oldest in the family. I'm the first of four children. Um, two other two other boys, and, and, and Fee was our, our our sister. So we. We had this responsibility to look after her. Our mum died uh, at 28 as well. She died in 1977. Just 20 years later, my sister uh, died also at 28. And so, but to even know that she did die in police custody in her own town and the circumstances surrounding her death are all the things that are still today are, are quite unbelievable. And I, I believe, you know, could have been quite um, easily um, achieved if we different decisions were made. However, that's what we had to deal with. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with your, your sister's death, uh, the alcohol. You were feeling, I understand, very, very angry. Um, how did that then play out in your life? Were you, what, what sort of future did you feel like you had at that point? tragedy of suicide itself when somebody you know them today if she would have died of a sickness if there was anything that we could have been able to live with her for a while and, and work it through until death we would have been able to deal with it but suicide uh, was something that really wasn't never ever even dreamt of occurring in my own family we've seen it happen in lots of other our, our close friends and families but you don't ever believe it's going to come to your own door and so for me that shocked me to to understand that uh the frailty of life i think what it did also uh, peter is that it, i dealt in in the in the depths of the darkness of the hopelessness i felt and the um the hurt that I had, the anger that I was carrying uh, as her older brother almost drove me to suicide as well. I, in my, lots of, my drinking got worse, my anger got worse. I would call myself a more functional alcoholic, so I went to work in the day, carried all the really, carried all the problems, but I, I held with it. And, um, but at night, but at night, I couldn't sleep. I drank a lot, and my anger was very, very prominent in my life. And and the unforgiveness that I felt, I, I just hated police so much. I, I couldn't sort of stand the thought of, uh, in some way, um, listening to police, having respect for them, and so on and so on. So it's it, it's quite a, a, a nasty couple of years uh, immediately after her, her death. Mm. So you mentioned your mum passed away also when she was 28 and like your sister left behind four children. 
uh, you being the eldest. So tell us, you, you really were influenced a lot by your grandmothers. Is that correct? Yeah, particularly, um, so um, particularly my, my grandmother on my mother's side, um, because she lived on Wilmeringal, uh, the remote community, I spent a lot of time there. It's more I felt, I felt a lot more safer uh, in that community, even though it was remote and didn't have lots of the other other things, my my father's side did. I really wanted to, to connect with my with my mother's side, and um, you know, she took me to be like her, her uh, sons and daughters more so than a grandchild. You know, just become a part of that family. You know, just you grow up. Um, you know, just like my grandmother wanted to raise me, and she was a Christian woman. And, um, so I remember uh, clearly almost, you know, every day, every night, my grandmother would be reading to us from the Bible. She would be talking about the Lord to us and um, singing to us and praying for us and sitting down to try and calm that turbulence that you have when you lose someone as close as your mum when you're very young. There is a turbulence that we deal with, that we have to deal with. Uh, and as a young boy, I wasn't dealing with it at all. Um, I didn't have a dad who, who was there every day. My dad was a hard-working man, but he was a very heavy drinker. And um, so he wasn't there to be able to hold you and love you, care for you, and, and, and raise you up like that. But our grandmothers, my grandmothers, played a very, very prominent role in the, the protection of me and the caring of me, but particularly my grandmother on my mother's side, who was a Christian. Mm. So what was the turning point then for you to come out of that despair? You said for a couple of years you felt really angry, you couldn't forgive police. Um, How did did you manage to come out of that? What had happened in the the days, uh, oh, within hours of Fiona's death uh, in Brewana, there was this major uproar from within the community, but certainly in my family as well, that we would uh, really take on the system and uh, and and, and uh, particularly have a, particularly the police and, and riot against the police. Um, and interestingly, if you researched Aboriginal deaths in custody in Brewarana, you would find that there was a a death in custody in 1987. So 10 years before Fiona passed away, there was a death in custody at the same police station and there was a riot. Uh, and it became a very significant part of the Rewarana history when uh, infrastructure was burnt to the ground and lots of people got hurt. Um, 10 years later, my sister in the same situation what was brought to my memory is what happened in 1987. And we were asked from a group of people to do exactly the same thing after Fiona's death. And I, myself and my dad, we spoke to those people and, and told them that they wouldn't, there would not be any, any uh, nothing would happen after Fiona's death. Please just let us uh, be respectful and there would be no violence. And that's exactly what happened. And we, we did tell the people that from Fiona's death, there would be a positive. We did 
didn't know what that was. Um, and I held on to that, Peter. I held on to that. I held on to what we'd said to the people at that time of her death, that there was going to be a positive. And in the turbulent couple of years, when we were going through the coroner's uh, inquiry into Fiona's death, I started to understand about actually what happened. I, I researched what New South Wales police were doing to employ, recruit, train and develop Aboriginal people to become police officers and to be particularly working in the remote communities where I grew up. There may be the odd person you've seen from time to time, but there was no real effort to bring Aboriginal people through the New South Wales Police and have them working in these remote communities. So I started to form up in my mind that I could really do something to change the way they do that. Um, at the same time, I remembering clearly that my grandmother had said to me, you are going to be a leader. And there's going to come a time in your life when you are going to come back to your communities and change things. So I started to deal with the emotional investment my grandmother had put into me. And at the same time, I was also dealing with that the Lord had raised me up, kept me from suicide, raised me up as a leader, gave me opportunities in education, a profile in rugby league, and a respect in the community. And that's when everything changed. So you had a real sense of purpose, but how... Tell us, how did you deal with that hatred you had for the police? How did you get over that? I was reading about unforgiveness, and I tried everything to try and understand how I could heal the pain. So I used a lot of vices to heal the pain. But I didn't know the truth because it was planted there by my grandmother when I was a little boy. And my family on my mother's side, my mother's sister is a pastor's wife. She used to contact me a lot and pray with me over the phone, even when I wasn't a Christian. She'd tell me that and bring to memory, bring to memory scripture that I learned as a little fella learn about all the things I've tried to heal the pain and try and stabilise my life, but there was still there's miss something clearly missing. And so beautiful because I married when I got married, my wife uh, lost her dad very quickly as when we got married. And she turned to what she knew, which was the Lord, and she recommitted her life. And so the Lord was closing in on me, I reckon, and I was trying to run away, and I tried everything to run away from, from God and the truth, but it was just closing in on me, and the truth was sort of staring me in the face. And it's then, it's then I made the decision. 
made the decision that I would commit my life uh, to following Jesus and I was going to do everything I possibly can to promote the love of the Lord to my people uh, and be that leader that my that God had called me to, to be, that my grandmother told me about. And this was the time when everything looks like it's, uh, the problems are so insurmountable, this was the time to step up to be that leader. And that's uh, what we've seen now because I haven't I've touched a drink in over 20-odd years, 22 years. Um, for a man who was an alcoholic at 14, um, that's a remarkable achievement. And people still make reference to how I used to be, that madman running around the community, um, with a, still with a profile, but with a very bad reputation. Mm. Peter, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, yeah, very moving, quite incredible. Uh, We're going to turn in a moment to questions because we started a little late, but do tell us about the iProud program that you established. So the iProud program is a concept I developed when I was going through my toughest time. I done all my research, research, as I say. I could see clearly that there was a missing link. Um, It wasn't about training Aboriginal people through a different process uh, that New South Wales Police has. It was a complementary program. It was a program that would bring Aboriginal people up to a standard to give them the best opportunity to be the best candidate for New South Wales Police. And uh, it took 10 years, 10 years of hard work, lots of consultation, lots of research, lots of submissions, um, and lots of advocacy uh, to a whole range of people about this model. The model itself now has been going uh, for over 10 years. So it took a long time to get it started. It, it helped me focus my life away from uh, drinking, Peter. It, it, it helped me also at the time to, to focus more on what the Lord was uh, had to say. Uh, so I read a lot more. I, I dedicated my life to following the Lord uh, and... Um, so changed almost immediately from what I used to be to what I am, and it's it's it, it's to see it, it's it's a bit of a, a pull on the road to Damascus experience uh, because it was so dramatic. Just changed from a, a very drunken, angry uh, man uh, with no hope to a person with uh, clearly a, a vision for the for my life, the purpose that we all need. Uh, and the iProud program every day is about giving young people the, a purpose, seeing that there is a hope, seeing that you can make a difference and give them an opportunity to, to, to work in a dream job uh, to, and at the same time help their community. Um, so the program has trained hundreds, hundreds of uh, young Aboriginal people uh, to become police officers. It's helped some people find their purpose may have not been police, but remarkable, remarkable changes in people's lives um, because they've found a purpose uh, to both help themselves and their own families, but to certainly uh, be really positive role models for our community. Yeah, quite remarkable, Peter, that out of the, the tragedy of your sister's death and the anger that you had towards the police, that you've now helped establish a training program to recruit and train Indigenous Australian 
is to enter the police force. So that's quite quite an amazing story. I, I think we we might turn now to questions from the men. Um, Um, my name is Matt. I'm from Eora country and um, I'm a seventh generation uh, white Australian and I am constantly inspired by the example of Indigenous men um, who have found grace and I want to honour Peter in front of everybody else as a genuine leader and a leader of his people, but mate, you've inspired us this morning as well. I have a question, which is from my friendships and my reading of uh, the Indigenous experience in Australia, and I'm particularly aware of the Yorta Yorta experience in around the Murray River, that Men used to do, Indigenous men, I'm thinking of the grandfathers and the great-grandfathers generation now, so in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, used to be doing so much better. You know, there's there's billions of dollars in government funding today, but Indigenous men are doing much worse, in my experience, today than they were doing in the 30s and 40s. So you talked about your grandmother, your mother's mother, and the people around her. They seem to be doing much better in health. They seem to be doing much better just in human flourishing. They seem to be doing much better, often in terms of education, often in terms of maintaining culture. Uh, And I just wonder, is that what you're seeing? And if so, what do you think is going on? Mate, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it's it's one of the amazing experiences to grow up with the people from that generation, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity. As I said earlier, that I got to grow up in that remote community alongside the people from that era. And my grandfather, great grandfather Jack Orchard, he died at 102. He never drank or smoked in his life. He worked until he was 90. He held that community together from... He tried to encourage us to stay away from grog, uh, stay away from welfare, and always hold on to the principles of working to protect your fa- feed your families. And um, as I say, the generations that come past after that, I think, missed that. They totally missed it. And we've had our young people being incarcerated really early, dying very early. Domestic violence in our community is the worst I've ever seen it uh, in in this generation. And the one just passed. Um, There is something awfully wrong. uh, And you won't get an argument from me. Do I have an answer? I would say, no, I don't. I wish I did, mate. But I do know what, what what we do know. We do know what the answer is. And we've got to share that and encourage that amongst our people and I'm certainly trying to do that as much as I possibly can because there is only one answer and it's not going to be delivered from the government. Um, In our families where there was hopelessness, helplessness uh, and when the Lord came into people's lives and they made a decision to follow the Lord, 
instantaneous, instantaneous change. No more drinking, no more violence, supporting your children, no more children being taken away, going to work, getting our kids into school. Uh, massive, uh, massive impact. Then we see the other side. And in my work, after 30 odd years of working in public life, I can only see that um, to remove all of the hopelessness that I still see today, it's the saddest thing, saddest thing, Matt, to go out to these communities and see the hopelessness in their eyes. It, among, even amongst the leaders, the people who are charged with the responsibility to help these communities, they are hopeless. And they cry on my shoulder. And I have to tell them that there's only one there is only one truth in all of this, and it's not the government. Don't wait on the government. Um, and it's, it's the story of the good news. There is hope. And it breaks my heart every day. And I go out and I say, it is not what my community organisation can bring. It's what the news, good news can bring, and it, and it is the turning point. If we make a decision, and a lot of our, this generation have grown up with the knowledge about the Lord and what the Lord has done and what he can do for, for you and what he can do for your family. Um, but we keep on rejecting it. We keep on continually rejecting our, um, uh, the truth. And wherever I go, whatever I see, whatever, whenever I can, I will always talk about what the Lord has done in my life be that testimony because generations know me and they know what I used to be um, and that's all I can say mate uh, but there is something awfully wrong but money isn't going to fix it and if you add another billion dollars onto the government's budget for Aboriginal people it still ain't going to make any difference um, it's like many communities when there's there's no grog um, and there's a focus on the Lord things change mm. Peter, um, you, we, we might just run a little over time, but I'll just allow one more question. Uh, obviously, men, if you need to head off to work, understandable, but uh, we'll finish up in a few minutes. So, Shashi, um, you've got a question. Uh, good morning, Peter. Uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for what was, I guess, an eye-opening talk about your personal life and just uh, some issues with Indigenous society that we're probably not aware of as we should be. Uh, the question is around Christianity and Aboriginal culture and how you think the church and the Christian community in general can play a bigger and better role in that hope you just spoke about, um, in particular with you know, sharing the gospel with Indigenous people. Thank you. And it, it's certainly it's something that I've, I've, I've um, certainly had a lot of experience in and had a lot of, I've read a lot about and met a lot of, uh, those older generational uh, Aboriginal uh, mission missionaries that travelled into the remote communities. Uh, it's where my grandmother first heard the gospel. She heard the gospel from an old Aboriginal man uh, who travelled into that community when he was an old man. And so the gospel in the Aboriginal community has been around um, since it came to this shore. And the, the, col the collision, if we call it, between Aboriginal culture 
uh, and, and Christianity is, is a constant in our community. It's where many uh, leaders who hold on to strongly on the culture um, uh, and at the at the reject at the same time rejecting um, Christianity. Um, it's it's every day in our community is most prominent. It's even prominent in the organisation I work with uh, today. Um, there's a real fear that uh, Christianity is a white man's religion. Um, and when I can see on the standing testimony to the gospel, there are there are in all cultures positive things we want to hold on to. But there are many things in all cultures and certainly in my culture that I will never, I will, will always reject. And while not allowed to come into my life and certainly not to be passed on to my, into my children. So um, it's sometimes we have to cherry pick the things that we want from a culture. Uh, and for mine, there's very much, very much a cherry picking going on almost on a daily basis. But the stock, the stock standard, um, you can't be Aboriginal, you can't hold on to your cultural values and be a Christian um, um, is something that I will always stand against and contest every time because I'm a strong Aboriginal man, but I'm a Christian man. I've got cultural values uh, in some part of my Indigenous culture, but I hold on to the one culture that I know that's going to sustain me for eternity, and that's Christianity. And um, But I'm constantly having those conversations on a daily basis Particularly with the people who stand strong, that um, you know we were we were uh, created in some other way, um, and when we talk about the truth, um, that's where we have a lot of um, intense moments of fellowship. I would call it, mate. Mm. Thank you. What is right and what is truth? Thank you, Peter, and uh, thank you, gentlemen, for those questions. We we have Peter, do stay on the line uh, if you can, just for a little longer. We we have gone over our time, but thank you for everyone's patience and not just for staying, but also for the technical issues we had at the outset. So uh, today is the last of our large Zoom meetings that unite us across the country. Uh, next week, of course, for those who are part of our small groups there's the opportunity to meet and won't it be great to reflect on the things that Peter has shared today and that's what we'll be doing in our small groups next Friday morning. Um, in terms of the future, uh, we'll let you know the plans for 2021. Obviously, everything has to be provisional. Uh, who knows uh, what's going to happen around the corner? We've learned some lessons this year that we can't control, uh, well, the most basic of things. So we'll let you know as we can what the thoughts are for next year. But preliminary, uh, the idea is that we would keep some form of national Zoom meeting going, possibly not with the same degree of frequency, but assuming that there is uh, social mobility, as increasingly is the case, we will have local uh, speakers and chapters meeting in each of our cities and, um, God willing, starting in Melbourne as well. Uh, early in 2021. Uh, again, one of the great blessings of this COVID period, the, the men joining from Melbourne. Say just a short closing prayer before we finish. Shashi, could you do the honours, mate? Uh, thanks, Peter. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace in the life of uh, Peter Gibbs that 
you instilled deep values of Christianity in him through his grandmother um, and in the darkest of tragedies uh, with the death of his sister, his alcohol addiction, uh, everything like that. You still called him out. And not only did you call him out, you have put him into such a position of power and leadership in the Indigenous community that young men, young women now are serving in the police force in an entity he hated um, and doing great things in the community. Lord, I just pray that uh, over the next decade, the remainder of his life, the next two, three decades, that he just continues to serve you and continues to be a blessing to his people. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Shashi. Peter, um, I hope you're still on the call. Thank you so much for sharing with us this morning. I just appreciate uh, the invitation and I uh, just hope that I've been some encouragement because you've been encouragement to me, guys, that you actually want to, to hear from me. And, you know, the Lord has put us together and that we all need each other. Um, and we all, at this point in time, more than ever, that if we can pray for each other and encourage each other and lift each other up, there it gives us hope. Um, because there is so much hopelessness. And as, as the question came through, you know, today, that you guys do care. You guys do care about us. We're not, our, we're not on our own. And as leaders, we also need to know that we're not on our own. Um, the Lord is with us every step of the way. And he'll put people like you in my life to help me, encourage me. So you have actually been an encouragement to me today, guys. So thank you very much for listening to me and appreciate the sincerity of the questions as well. So God bless you. Thank you, Peter. And uh, thank you for sharing. And it's been a great encouragement for many, um, not only by the visible reaction I can see on the screen, but by the text messages and notes that are coming through. So thanks again. And um, let's stay in touch.